many make times. No bones about the fact that I find it embarrassing that the Labour Party has never had a female leader. I mean, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Mm. Um, and, and, and you know, who would never expect me to pretend otherwise? That is Keir Starmer. <laughs> uh, he would be. He, I mean, the amount of times that I've said this, and then various newspaper reporters. Uh, report on it and he's like you know don't I'm not offended in any way like you and know says, you, oh it's Jess going. I know Jess always yeah, you, well it's just like you keep going um but like you know it's what? embarrassing it's embarrassing so yeah. you know uh I, 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 the, there's you know the, there's nothing more really to be said on that and uh and I actually I mean I put it down always to the fact that a Labour woman is a radical thing. It's a much harder uh, prospect because actually the women who've been elected, although I'm going to, do you know what? For once, I'm going to give some credit to Liz Truss here in that I don't think she wasn't radical, just radically bad. Um, but, um, but you know, like, you know, if you think of Theresa May and uh, Margaret Thatcher, they didn't upset the apple cart with regard to the status quo of one of the most fundamental inequalities in our society they were always they were going to continue to deliver wealth and power where wealth and power had always always been delivered mm -hmm. um but a, a labor woman is by its very nature a radically feminist one um no matter whether Theresa may wore the t-shirt or not she wasn't going to upset the horses in regard to who held power in our country um, and so I think that that is one of the reasons why it is a harder, it's a higher, it's a higher barrier to jump yeah. over for mm. Labour women. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. One of the current topics they talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper. Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of a head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is audacious and is fast becoming a well-known and outspoken political figure in the UK. She's an MP, best-selling author, and is committed to improving the lives of others, especially the most vulnerable. She's even earned a reputation for direct and plain speaking. We do like fearless, candid conversations on his talk, but before we get into that, here's a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Magic Mind, the world's first productivity shot. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Jess Phillips is a Labour Party politician who became the MP for the constituency of Birmingham Yardley at the 2015 general election. Before becoming an MP, Jess worked for Women's Aid in the West Midlands, developing services for victims of domestic abuse, sexual violence, human trafficking and exploitation. She became a local councillor in 2012, where she worked tirelessly to support residents. Her hard work was recognised when she became Birmingham's first ever victims champion. Since becoming an MP, Jess has continued her fight to support those who need it most. She has been unfazed by threats and continues to call out sexist attitudes and promotes women's rights. She has written three best-selling books, The Life of an MP, Everything You Need to Know About Politics, which we will discuss in the course of this episode. 
Every Woman, One Woman's Truth About Speaking Truth, and Truth to Power, Seven Ways to Call Time on BS. All books reflect her commitment to speaking up and having the courage to have her voice heard and make a difference. Let's begin. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jess to Heads Talk. Delighted to have you here today. Hello, thanks for having me. Okay, let's begin. Once again, great to have you on the show. Um, I would say let's start gently, but I'd like to go straight in and ask you about your role as the Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. What is your remit and is this a fairly young Shadow Ministerial position? Yeah, do you know what? I mean, I don't actually know when um, it sort of first existed. So there is a minister for safeguarding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't know if she has domestic abuse in her title, although it is in her remit. But she is the she is the minister for safeguarding, and we sort of uh, you know normally we 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 shadow them as they are mm-hmm. um however um i think that the labor party wanted very specifically to make a uh, position that was really quite specifically around uh domestic abuse and uh, men's violence against women mm-hmm. um so I, I i don't actually know i'm de- i'm certainly not the first one to hold it i don't think so um i think it it has existed before me but uh, it doesn't necessarily shadow directly the government minister mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm. okay, role. Um, but yeah, my remit is, I mean, funnily enough, I'm, I sit within the Home Office team. And so I sit within Yvette Cooper's team. Mm-hmm. Um, but my remit is much, much broader than that, because actually um, domestic abuse and violence against women and girls more broadly and safeguarding like trafficking, et cetera, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sexual exploitation, they actually don't I mean the criminal justice system is probably 20% if that of the policy in that area Mm. um it's government keeps it the lead on that policy in the home office and always has Mm -hmm. um but actually really it's health it's education it's housing probably housing more than anything it's welfare it's it's it it covers a huge uh amount of Mm -hmm. policy areas so um I sort of roam freely that's my remit, roaming freely around all of those particular topics about what will make mm-hmm. uh, a reduction in violence against women and girls and an improvement in policy. Mm. I was wondering, has this been on the increase since recent developments such as Brexit and the cost of living crisis? Um, well, look, domestic abuse is caused by, uh, and violence against women and girls is caused by one thing and one thing only, and that is... Um, a power and control model where women are still considered to be lesser in society and therefore those who have more power use it against them um, like any other model of uh, mm-hmm. ag- aggressor and um, a- and victim um, mm-hmm. so it isn't it isn't you know there is not really anything that makes it worse other than you know the patriarchal norms of our society okay. Okay. Uh, so however the outcome of um being a victim of domestic abuse is is definitely exacerbated by events mm-hmm. so events such as brexit or um um 
the cost of living crisis, undoubtedly, they have an effect on how people are able to access services, recover, um, be well enough to, or, or well, wealthy, mm -hmm. chance to be a fine thing, just not be destitute if they leave, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and so it is the risk level is increased by events. So COVID being a, an obvious example, but mm -hmm. it doesn't increase the, you know, the incidents, the incidents of domestic abuse are, are, are relatively constant. All right. So the root cause, as you say, is power. And then anything that sits on top of it, no matter what, it's still the root cause, it's power, men power over women in, in that sense. Yeah. But so, so <laughs> What are the long-term solutions? What should they look like? I mean, for example, um, financial education for women, which enable independence, and, and like, so the, they empower themselves. If, 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 if you like, what say you, Jeff? Yeah. So, I mean, fundamentally, like, I mean, I won't live to see this, so I've, I've given up that hope in my life. But um, uh, I'm not yeah. such an idealist anymore. I used to think that I might, but I don't think I will. The yeah. fundamental long-term plan to end domestic violence and violence against women is um is the equality of women so uh, and more so than anything else the economic equality of women so mm -hmm. you actually like in my position i have to constantly keep an eye on things things such as the gender pay gap have an effect on domestic yeah. abuse yeah. things such as sectoral working in care work for example like there there are big economic arguments for why this uh, occurs that don't you know nobody would ever consider to sit within the policy of domestic abuse uh, work but absolutely mm -hmm. do so that's you know you're talking like a 20 to 30 to 40 year trend and change in trajectory that will eventually mm -hmm. do it what you can do in the meantime is you can pull levers um that uh mean that people have uh better access to independence better access to support that there is actually any uh part of the problem with domestic violence in our in the uk society and i imagine it's the same elsewhere mm -hmm. but i'm by no means an expert is uh, but it's certainly the case in the uk is that we still don't have any real monitoring or criminal justice response to the perpetrators of it um not really i mean a tiny tiny fraction of the the million women each year that will suffer it um will ever have any sort of justice uh response mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um or even seek one i mean the vast majority don't seek one mm. um and so uh there, there is really nothing um in policy over uh the the last mm. uh, certainly the last decade but even before mm around uh, the perpetration of violence and the causes mm. of that so there's there's something that has to be done in that particular space but um yeah the the in the long term it is just the equalization of men and women will change it yeah so 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 we'll get a sense of what governments should do whether it's uk or across the globe what governments should do we have an idea what corporations should do in the work environment or any institutions for that but what about the ordinary man, the ordinary guy on the street who's not in this space and, and is not committing this crime, what should they do to help reduce this risk of sexism and sex violence? We always seem to be talking about what women should do. What should these guys do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a huge amount, there's a big vacuum waiting for them to fill it. So, you know, come come on by, fellas, is what I would say on this point. Um, but what that, I mean, what, it's it's almost as if uh, we sort of uh, eat my own tail in answering this question because I shouldn't have to tell them what to do, mm. um, and it's still it's still women doing the work of like you know guiding them like taking the horse to water 
character. But if I were to give advice, as I, you know, I, I live in the world. I've, I've got two teenage sons. One's a, uh, an adult now, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and so I live in this world. I have three brothers as well. I, I'm literally only ever surrounded by men. Uh, mm -hmm. And so what they have to do uh, in this space is care, first and foremost, care about it and think it's their problem. Mm -hmm. that's that's the very first thing that they can do they can assume a role of um of you know of activist in it no, and i don't mean like you know placards and things yeah, i mean yeah. that they shouldn't assume a neutral um lifestyle on the matter they should assume an active uh, as active participants in the the struggles and in practical terms that looks like um well i suppose bystander uh intervention at the mm -hmm. very limit at the very base of the um uh of the triangle mm -hmm. that, that the least they can do is at least bystander intervention to the kind of attitudes but what age should they start doing this because i'm looking at teenagers teenage boys and the peer pressure it was so enormous that even if they see something that's wrong, have they got the, the character to say something about it? Whereas I think we can be a little bit harder on guys in their 20s and going up. Yeah. Um, am I yeah. wrong in saying that? Well, no, because, my, I mean, uh, I mean you, you're not wrong that there is all sorts of social pressures, but it's, I mean, then... They have you have to fight against them. They I don't think that my sons, for example, would find it difficult to point out if somebody was being racist or to raise an alert with a different adult mm -hmm. at school, for mm -hmm. example, if they saw somebody being racist. I don't I, I you know, I, I like I say, I think it's the bare bloody minimum, um, frankly. Mm. Um, and I would expect that of my sons and, and actually they are taught that from a very young age both by families in, and institutions and the media like it's a, it's everywhere that that is like you know and mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's perfect and there's no racism in schools my god mm -hmm. I only wish that was the case mm -hmm. however I do think that we don't expect them to not have some sort of pathway for, for reporting in those circumstances we would absolutely expect every institution that that any child is in to have some manner of safeguarding principle where there was a, a point of call to raise it so mm -hmm. even if they they don't have the strength of character to be like dude don't say that i have to say i, I living with two teenage boys in this particular environment i don't think my children are incapable of um of pointing it out when their friends say sexist and horrible things that know in fact well, I'm but, watching yeah, them do but, it. but but with all due respect jess um jess phillips is, is their mother their mother so it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. very different from you know your character is passed on to them almost by osmosis if you like so um, it's easy for them to sort of have that because they have your backing. Of course. Backing, of course. So. Um, yeah, no, uh, but I mean, of course, but then that's on the institutional institutions to build that in. Like, you know, my children have all sorts of things, all sorts of privileges by osmosis mm. of being my children. Um, and actually, I, I think if anything, they've learned to be good bystanders uh, and not be bystanders. In fact, by their father, not me. Um, mm. He uh, because actually, unfortunately, I'm far more conditioned. Um, even even Jess Phillips is conditioned to not notice when dreadful and mm. sexist things happen. Yeah. So yeah. I have been in like public with my husband where somebody's wolf whistled at a woman or like leered at a woman. Mm -hmm. And I haven't even noticed it because I'm just so used to it. 
Um, and my husband does totally pull people up on it. My husband worked worked for many years on building sites and pulled people up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's uh, you know that they actually they're getting that character from by osmosis from him much more so than me. Right. Um, but um, the yes, I mean you're 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 not wrong, but they have all sorts of privileges, and I actually think that the privileges that my children have, I I spend my entire my whole political life, my whole career mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. about ensuring that every child has those privileges and so it's to make systems in our institutions to ensure that children feel that they have that if they're not getting it at home so they almost need a uh, some kind of training or allyship playbook that needs to be given to these kids of a certain age in order to know what they should do when they should do it what it looks like yeah. when they see it that sort of stuff and that needs to be yeah filtered through via family maybe in through the schools something like that to to help this movement um progress just a little bit further sooner a hundred percent a hundred percent but that's that sort of in train that is that that so we i mean in 2016 myself and a number of other members of parliament passed a piece of legislation that uh demanded um uh, compulsory not opt-in but um opt-out and, and it's quite hard to opt out of mm-hmm. um healthy relationship education from the age of four to 18 mm-hmm. now what that actually looks like in practice is still in it's in the foothills and it's nowhere near good enough nor is it assessed enough nor is it considered uh to be uh the level of importance that i think it, it probably needs but that that exists and that is we are at the beginning of that particular thing but it's just like anything like you know we teach mm-hmm. kids to brush their teeth yeah you know like it's not it's not rocket science to you know um and it, it isn't, but there's not the peer pressure not to brush your teeth, sort of thing. So, yeah, that's well, the yeah, but I mean, if you are, if there is a system within an institution that um, is uh, a state-funded uh, institution where there is peer pressure to be violent and abusive towards oh. women, then we have yeah. a serious problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and that, and that needs a robust response. Yeah, yeah, no, that that is a very true point. Um, I'd like to move on. I'd like to move on to a, a different topic. Um, and it's one of the big topics today in the UK. Um, it's about the current cost of living crisis. Um, what do you think should be done about this that's currently not in place? And if Labour gets into power, what are some of the things? you would do to change the circumstances of many oh well i mean the th- the truth of the matter is it, in regards to the second part of your question is it's going to take a long time mm-hmm. um to uh i mean the such calamity that i see in my constituency um i spent all day yesterday running a specific housing and homelessness surgery in a school for the just for the parents of the kids who go to uh, a school, a primary school in my constituency, it's quite a large primary school. But um, uh, but yeah, I spent the entire day dealing with what will effectively be the homelessness and um, inappropriate housing of hundreds of people. Mm. Um, and, and and that's just one school out of like the 30 schools in my constituency just to give you a, an idea so that the, one of the, the you know the, this isn't going to change overnight but there has to be an in, mm. an absolute um, concentration on housing in our country for a start mm. off and the mm. idea of housing as a human right um, is 
undoubtedly something that has been lost uh, and needs to uh, be. I feel like it existed in my nan's when my nan was my age. Um, it was like that 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 idea <laughs> certainly needs to um, to come back. So uh, I would say that the issue on housing is and the cost of housing mm-hmm. is without doubt. Mm-hmm. the biggest issue in the cost of living crisis as I see it uh, mm-hmm. in my constituency and I'm sure that's the same across the country. What are you saying? Um, housing has in the provision of it or the affordability of it? Both. <laughs> both <laughs> of those things. Um, the, I mean but one begets another doesn't it? The availability yeah. of housing drives um, a spiralling housing market um, and yeah you know like the you can't you can't have one without the other but mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. and also the standard the standard yep. of housing is b- vitally important as well because if you're living in terrible conditions you actually cannot be you cannot t- partake in the economic growth that our country needs to mm-hmm. get out of the mm-hmm. uh, like it's an impossibility i mean i've got kids in my constituency four kids two parents living in one room um like you know going through their GCSEs or A-levels right now for example which is what I was seeing yesterday like that how on earth can there's a privilege my children have that I want for everybody that that wouldn't happen to them Mm -hmm. um so you know there's got to be a a big uh conversation about that Uh, I mean also wages just like the you know the sort of absolute deflation of wages over mm. the last decade oh, well, um yeah. has you know has been catastrophic um in being able to afford or uh housing of any kind mm-hmm. uh so there has to be uh, and when we're talking about women there is a sectoral imbalance with regard to wages so really i mean i suppose the big issues that the labor government is going to have to grasp the nettle on and it certainly won't be in the first year it certainly won't probably be in the first three years that any outcome would be able to be seen in this and so mm-hmm. uh it is 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 basically social care and social housing mm-hmm. um or or housing for social rent uh for want of a better word but affordable housing but not the affordable housing as it's termed at the moment because affordable housing when um housing developers come to my constituency i would like to laugh in the face of the idea of what they term to be affordable mm-hmm. um but um yeah mm-hmm. so that, that those are big 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 ticket items for once again <laughs> yeah. your long-term view um, yeah. But it, it, in the short term, of course, you have to be pulling levers on people's immediate monthly outgoings and incomings. And there's a variety of different things like, you know, a, a, an overhaul of the universal credit system. Um, the Labour Party said uh, recently that, you know, making choices like the more appropriate windfall taxes uh, and better uh, resourced windfall taxes on gas and oil giants uh, to stop people having to have the uplift in their council tax which literally will cause homelessness even just in the margin of having to pay 20 quid extra a month for some of my constituents will mean they will end up homeless um and so that but those are short-termist incidents that the like mm-hmm. labor party can do but in the long term we have got to rebalance wages and housing costs in the in in the long term because it's just it's un it well it's unsustainable as it exists today yeah i i know as you, you mentioned with the wages can you remember prior to this when the nurses went on strike well no i i literally cannot i 
I have a vague recollection because I was raised literally on either a picket line or at some sort of, <laughs> um, uh, you know, marching against something. I have a vague recollection from my very early childhood of marching for nurses about mm -hmm. something uh, in the 1980s. But yeah, absolutely. I cannot remember a time in my life um, when the nurses went out on strike. I, 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 I literally can't. And yeah. so you know when we're in this situation and somebody funnily enough I was knocking doors in Stoke-on-Trent for the local elections recently and a man said he he described on the doorstep to me not a very pleasant man uh <laughs> he said um he said oh well you know I think that they're greedy uh scum was how he described the nurses for going out on strike uh, to which I responded, I said, well, he said, oh, you know, they get paid £30,000 or whatever. That He said, I know a staff nurse and she gets paid £30,000. I said, OK, if you're a single mom on £30,000 and you've got two kids, like you, you honestly think that you can make ends meet with that? And um, he literally said to me, well, she shouldn't be a single mother. And then at that point, I thought, I'm going to eliminate this conversation because we're not going to agree. Um, mm. But, um, but he, the, you know, the idea that, if you are, I mean, I've had um, not just nurses, but ward sisters coming into my office for feedback vouchers. Mm, wow. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's going to take a few years to sort that one out, isn't it? Yeah. It's if you get it, if you get into that stage, goodness me. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the time, so I'm moving on, and I want to talk about your book, your your latest book. Um, incidentally, we will provide a link um, to the book um, for the listeners in your show notes. It's The Life of an MP, Everything You Really Need to Know About Politics. First, provide my listeners with a, a brief introduction to the book and, and why this book? Um, so the, the book is, I mean, literally, as it, as it says on the tin, it is all <laughs> the things about politics that... Basically, my husband... Um, who is not a member of a political party is not he's, he's political in in the sense that anybody is but um he's not apolitical but he's he doesn't understand you know he's not ever been part of any sort of political system or mm -hmm. or elected office or even yeah. remotely and he said to me i hadn't got a clue what your job was like you know until i was doing it he was like yeah. i had no idea what it actually means and mm -hmm. what it's actually happening and I always just want to my 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 whole political uh career although I didn't intend it to be has become and will remain about inviting more people in and getting more people to feel active and feel like they can change mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. uh, and so I wanted to demystify um some of the things that people just have no idea about so the vast majority of the, the of political um reporting that people are interacting with is about Westminster and it is about 15% of my job mm. the vast majority of my job is in Birmingham and people uh, you know people who in interact with you yeah my constituents they are the absolute lifeblood of my job and actually it's a gold-plated democracy that we live in even though it feels incredibly fragile at the moment and that's another reason for sort of plowing this particular mm -hmm. burrow in this book in an approachable and humorous way I have to say I try and make light of things mm -hmm. that are sometimes very serious and seem very complicated but actually when you get down to it are largely just amusing anecdotes um but the like the it seems so fragile at the moment but we have such a precious democracy in our country 
in that only in the Republic of Ireland is there even a slight comparator with what we have in the UK, where you are your member of parliament is literally accessible to pretty mm -hmm. much every member of the electorate. So mm -hmm. I represent people from all over the world. We're in a very, very diverse community. Mm -hmm. uh, and like I remember a bloke, I think he was from Cameroon, um, who'd moved to my constituency and he came, he joined the Labour Party and he came out door knocking with me and he literally could not believe that I was knocking on people's doors it's <laughs> like that this is unbelievable thought you lived in the gilded cage somewhere yeah, yeah he was like I, well you just drive past us in SUVs that are blacked out surely yes. that's your job that is yeah you know <laughs> Theresa May the entire time she was the prime minister like went on a Friday evening and sat in like a like a drafty church hall and listened to people complaining about slabs yeah. like and to some that seems ridiculous and in the book actually I recount a story where Hillary Clinton made William Hague um, like tell stories about the kind of things he had to do with his constituents to yeah. an American audience because she couldn't believe yeah. it. Um, <laughs> my French sister-in-law who works in uh, government in France, when mm -hmm. she's here, like when people are ringing me on my personal phone to complain that leaves have fallen off trees outside their house, mm -hmm. she finds it absolutely baffling that this is a thing that can exist. But I um, think it's great that this is a thing that does exist in the yeah. UK. Yeah, and we don't celebrate we do. it at all. We don't yes. celebrate it. I, I, I think so. But I also do believe that um, politics in general is it's kind of taken a turn for the worst. And people feel they are better informed, even if whether they are or not. Yeah. And they're more aware or they feel more aware yeah. than ever before. Yet they're turning away from it. And I'm, I get people, I hear people say that they are partyless. They don't know which way to turn or the way things are going. I'm not quite sure it's because of what they're reading or watching or seeing, but it, it's reached a sort of a, 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 a almost like a position where people are thinking something radical has to change. How would Labour, if they win the next general election, turn this around? Well, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that you you, you can have a calamitous government or, frankly, boring governments. Those are the sort of two that where people and at the moment, I you know, I don't think anyone, even if uh, I had a Tory sat next to me, would try and argue that it hasn't been quite calamitous uh, of late. I think um, people are uh, boring, actually. Well, the the, the I, thing I is what the Labour Party almost has in quote, I say boring in quotes. It's more stability, I think. Oh, absolutely. But I, I actually think that the only way that the Labour Party can counter that in government, and you can only do it from government, is to essentially um, it, it seems like people people often think, oh, you know, we want something. When you say something has to be radically different, well, at the moment, actual governance would be radically different. Just governing and things working yes. or, or at least working towards it would be radically different. So there's an element of that. But I have to say, when people say that they are politically homeless, like you say, and they're, yeah. they're like, I have to say that I, I, I actually am delighted by by that in some regard because I um I am a great believer I'm a member of the Labour Party it's like religion to me I can't I can't shift it no matter if I tried I wouldn't be able to get that it's like a you know if I go and if I went and voted and didn't vote for the Labour Party it would be like a Ouija board of my dead relatives like <laughs> making do it so uh you know I, I I am tribal to to the nth degree yes. however I, I, I don't know that party loyalty of old serves the public best. Um, and uh, I, I am sort of thrilled 
at the moment by the fact that the electorate, who I, I have to say my commitment and trust in the electorate, even when they don't go, they don't agree with me or mm -hmm. they don't go the way that I uh, am professing, the fact that they move in a way that is united often is and, and you wouldn't notice it if you weren't like heavily involved in the front mm -hmm. line but at the moment party loyalty is no longer the thing that people vote for mm. um and i i cannot tell you how pleased i am by that i think that people are thinking about it much more and maybe they're thinking about it on the basis of something they've read on facebook that is wrong i, I don't i sort of don't care i mean obviously i i want to counter mm -hmm. misinformation but i am i am thrilled by the fact that in 2017 when um they voted for a hung parliament like even even back to 2015 they were like we're we're, we're you know we we mm -hmm. or 2010 we we're not sure we want a tory government we're not happy with where we've got to with this one we want a sort of midpoint and they elected mm -hmm. a um coalition then in um then when they gave cameron the majority they gave him a majority of only 12 which um which made for a different sort of politics then when mm -hmm. when we couldn't get on because of brexit they they literally made a hung parliament so we might have to and when we totally failed at that they were like right you failed we're going to give a majority and I, I can't tell you how much i trust the electorate to do the dirty work that often politicians cannot do mm. and i think that the end of sort of the idea of safe seats and this area always votes like this and this yeah. area votes like that, that that's a gone I, thing now isn't it I, I, it's gone and i i can't tell you how i know to a lot of people that would sound counterintuitive uh as somebody with a safe labor seat now I, it's mm. not it's not always been the case obviously i won it off the liberal democrats but, and it was Tory, it's been Tory, Labour and Liberal in my lifetime. So, you know, I like my constituents. They're like, you know, they shop around. Um, and I just can't tell you how much that pleases me in a way because I don't want it to be. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm from this category. I vote like this. I want people to really mm. think what's best for my country not just for me and yeah, i'm not yeah. going to vote this way in my area even though that's the way i would normally feel because i want to be different for the whole country mm. honestly maybe, i love uh, it it's like a symphony to me to watch maybe the the astuteness of the electorate is coming from that as in um being very strategic in who and what <laughs> they vote for because it will hurt them via their pockets or through other means rather than just be blindly loyal to one side or the other i agree and it's it's almost selfless in a way even though the people are definitely thinking how am i gonna stop being uh you know like yeah. being able to not afford things people yeah. definitely vote like that however yeah. there isn't a sense that i can't do this on my own mm. and so i'll lend this my vote for this period mm. and i'll lend yes. it for that yes. like yes. I, and I, do you know what i'm totally yeah. there for it I love it. So you, yeah, you, you hear that on, on the radio, which is interesting. You, you hear a, an individual call and said, oh, I, I voted for the Conservative um, five years ago. Um, today I'm voting for the Labour. You know, next Wednesday I'm going to vote for the Lib Dem. It's not yeah. just, I'm going to stick with this party through and through because my nan and my grandparents, my parents, you know, now it's whether this party suits my needs for this time That's yeah I, I agree and uh, I you know I, I'm totally there for it I like it I mean obviously I'd like to make sure that there was better regulation on what lies can be told and things yeah. well sorry I'd like no lies to be told but you know that I, there definitely is something to happen in the space of misinformation but do you know what I actually but I trust the electorate much more than most people I think they can see through a lot of it I I I, I don't have no faith in them I have I have absolute faith in them actually funnily enough mm -hmm. and 
So good on the electorate. And okay, I, I hear your your faith in the electorate. I'd like to ask who are or were your political insp inspirational characters and why? Um, it's funny because my I, I definitely, even though I grew up very, very, very political in a very political household, I, I definitely didn't like sort of hero worship any particular politicians. <laughs> it only comes latterly, um, I think. I mean, I mean, my political heroes were the people I could see around me, like my my mother and my nan, mm -hmm. who were you know as and and my dad as well. But my my mum and my nan were uh, you know they lived socialism. They didn't just um they didn't just profess it um, they um, they, they, yeah they they were they were uh, like you know they 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 fought for things and they they looked at systems that they didn't like and they set about trying to change them with political action uh, and direct action i don't mean like that i mean my nan definitely was a bit of a direct direct action kind of gal uh, but i mean literally like like if something doesn't exist in your local area, make it exist. So I went to a thing called Women's Liberation Playgroup uh, because there was no formalised childcare when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And my mum and a load of other women for, in the late 1970s set up essentially a cooperative where the women took it in turns to look after the children for the day so that the women could go to work. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's what, you know, that's what I grew up you want with. It done. I grew up with. Start by doing it yeah, yourself, get it done. Yeah. Get it done. And so those women are my political heroes okay. um yeah but i have to i'm gonna i'm gonna say that uh, you know forevermore harriet Harman will uh mm. will be my political idol and it's funny to have a political idol you know well who sends you funny gifts um but um <laughs> but she uh, when she said she was gonna stand down in the next election mm -hmm. i tried to write a message to her about how grateful i was for her and it's nothing to do with politics actually mm -hmm. although it is everything is to do with politics mm -hmm. It's because Harriet Harman and the women elected in the 1997 election literally changed the fortunes of my family and the the mm -hmm. outlook for okay. my children. And I will never, ever be able to thank them enough. The debt I owe to her for my children, having all those privileges that I just talked about, mm -hmm. is it's lifelong. Um, she mm -hmm. gave my children, uh, you know, I had my children young and I had nothing. And... Mm -hmm. She gave them everything and she didn't know me. She didn't know anything about me, uh, but I wouldn't be where I am without her. And it's mm. nothing to do with the action she's taken to get more women elected, although that definitely helped. It's to do with the action she took for women it's in me, that yeah, Making a difference in your life. Yeah. You can't really put a price on that. So no. That's I mean, I, I, just, I can't thank you enough. I haven't heard for a while now. But it's nice to hear. But she was on the Olympic committee, wasn't she? Uh, yeah, yeah, she, uh, no, uh, her and Tessa Jowell, yeah. Uh, yeah, were, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay, let's continue with um, female leaders. Let's briefly look at the Labour's female shadow ministers. There are quite a few. Um, I counted 17, I could be wrong. Um, I, I want to know, in your opinion, what are they bringing to the party like never before? Um, well... I wouldn't say like never before because they're definitely you know the sort of the amazing women of the ninety seven uh, and yeah. certainly Barbara Castle in the seventies. But I think they're bringing the same thing. Uh, yeah. They're bringing. Uh, I mean, one thing you have to do as a woman in uh, in leadership uh, of any sort, but uh, certainly in political leadership, is you're basically there to remind people that women exist a lot of the time. So that whenever anything is being discussed, being like, oh, remember this this will have a different effect on the women in the country than it does to the men in mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. 
So could we just remember that? So that that's one really important thing. Um, but um, uh, without wanting to use particularly uh, gendered language, but I can't help it because I live in the society I live. What those women bring it is a whole heap of sass, uh, and um, and, mm -hmm. and frankly, a, a, a willingness I think to push things further than sometimes our male counterparts are willing to do. Bravery, bravery amongst women politicians and ability to and willingness to take risks, mm -hmm. funnily enough, because we're groomed from childhood as women to risk manage almost everything, literally every movement that we make. Uh, uh, we, we are inbuilt doing risk assessments. Mm -hmm. We are actually quite good at taking political risks where others won't. And, you know, the idea of Rachel Reeves uh, being, uh, you know, if if the Labour Party wins, being the first ever female chancellor, I have mm -hmm. to say, like, that will make the thing where I started this conversation about w women's economic empowerment being the actual silver bullet. Yeah. It will never, ever. Rachel is a woman who's written two books about um, the empowerment of women in politics oh, and why so women's voices be... matter. Oh, she will never forget. And, okay. it, you know, just... So actually what they're bringing is a bit less work for the rest of the women. <laughs> like yeah. it won't be that people have to campaign so hard. It will just mm -hmm. be the default that we remember. Mm -hmm. But you, you talk about Rachel Reeves potentially, quite possibly, if you do get into power, being the first female chancellor. When do you see not only a female leader of the Labour Party, but the first female Labour Party Minister, it can't happen soon enough, can it? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's. It, I'm no bones about the fact so that I find many it, times. That yeah, so I, many times. No about the fact that I find it embarrassing that the Labour Party has never had a female leader. I mean, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Mm. Um, and, and, and you know, who would never expect me to pretend otherwise? That is Keir Starmer. <laughs> uh, he would be. He, I mean, the amount of times that I've said this, and then various newspaper reporters. Uh, report on it and he's like you know Derek, I'm not offended in any way like you know you, says, you, oh it's Jess going. I know Jess always yeah, you, well it's just like you keep going um but just like you know it's books. embarrassing it's embarrassing so yeah. you know uh I, 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 there's you know the, there's nothing more really to be said on that and uh and I actually I mean I put it down always to the fact that a Labour woman is a radical thing. It's a much harder uh, prospect because actually the women who've been elected, although I'm going to, do you know what? For once, I'm going to give some credit to Liz Truss here in that I don't think she wasn't radical, just radically bad. Um, but, um, but, you know, like, you know, if you think of Theresa May and uh, Margaret Thatcher, they didn't upset the apple cart with regard to the status quo of one of the most fundamental inequalities in our society they were always they were going to continue to deliver wealth and power where wealth and power had always always been delivered mm -hmm. um but a, a labor woman is by its very nature a radically feminist one um no matter whether Theresa may wore the t-shirt or not she wasn't going to upset the horses in regard to who held power in our country um and so i think that that is one of the reasons why it is a harder it's higher it's a higher barrier to jump yeah. over for yeah. labor women um and so uh, and you know that that is uh hopefully in our lifetime jess we'll see it oh, oh god in my lifetime if i don't see it in my lifetime that's something i haven't given up on i definitely <laughs> will see it in my lifetime
and and you know um we have seen um, the recent departure of two very prominent female leaders Jacinda Harden and uh, Nicola Sturgeon are they opening the doors for an honest reflection on the stress of such roles and allow both men and women to say when you know when it's right enough is enough yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, they are, uh, and you know, I pay absolute credit to them for, mm. um, for their honesty in that. I mean, obviously, like any other high-level politician, it won't have been the only thing that uh, made them stand out. And I think in both cases, it, there was a political reason as well. But mm. the fact that they can reflect on it so honestly yeah. afterwards is is to be commended without it's without refreshing, isn't it? yeah it's it's, 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 it's totally it's not, refreshing. It's not that line stepping down to spend more time with your family is actually saying you know i've had enough <laughs> yeah. yeah i've had enough and who could blame them i mean especially <laughs> nicola sturgeon it's been like 34 years i didn't even think she was that old i was like jesus christ give the woman a rest um but I'm not sure she's having much of a rest right now. But yeah, I do, I do feel like if anyone does, having probably one, a, re- a rest there. from the press anyway. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's um, yeah, like you know, it takes its toll. But the 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 truth of the matter is, and I think that the reason that they're able to be that honest is, is the, the nature of women's communication is different for a start off. But also that that the tiredness they will feel is worse than a man would feel in lots of regards. For one reason, the attacks that they will have suffered will have been tenfold mm-hmm. um, to that. And the kind of stupid annoyances they would have had to avoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, less so in the case of uh, Nicola Sturgeon, but definitely in the case of Jacinda Ardern. It is different to be a mother in politics than it is to be a father in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reality is is that still so much of the emotional labor no matter how highly you rise to the top of your field and that you you know I, and my family is totally we we 50 50 if anything i'm like it's more 60 40 and my husband doing mm-hmm. 60 like mm-hmm. you know but still the emotional pull of guilt about my my abilities as a mother are meted out on women in a way, mm. my husband has never felt guilty for working late mm. or not mm. being there. He just thinks that's his job. Like, that's tough luck. Whereas yeah. I, it's tiring to yeah, feel that guilt. There's a lot to, to deal with when you put it down like that, isn't there? Yeah, like, and so imagine that tiredness on top of, you know, a war in Ukraine. Yeah. So it's a lot to deal with. Like, it's yeah. just an extra layer of tired. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, let, let's end on a fun note. Um. It's one of my favourite programmes, and I am team Ian Hislop, by the way. <laughs> I've got to say that. Um, but you've appeared on Have I Got News For You. Um, how was it? I mean, the first time I did it, I was absolutely so terrified. I don't think I've ever been as scared of anything in all my life. <laughs> um, but they were so lovely to me. Um, and uh, the first time I ever did it, um, the host was Martin Clunes from right. uh, Men Behaving Badly. Fame. Yes, I know. Yes. And he was, he put me at such ease. Uh, they manage it really, really, really well. Um, and also, but the thing is, as a politician, you know, you're, you're there yes. to be sent <laughs> up. Like, that's the job. <laughs> And you added to, pressure for you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it is added pressure. Mind you, you don't have the pressure that you have to necessarily be that funny because nobody's expecting that of you. Oh, um, and so if you manage that, and I am naturally like uh, 
comic. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I don't find that bit so under pressure. But, you know, you're constantly waiting for the, the, the pitfall uh, of being sent up. But you just have to <laughs> learn to just take it. I have watched it with you on it. It's much harder to present it than just to go on. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've done that. I've done it once. Um, and um, it's just, yeah, like I'm actually not very good at delivering other people's words. And when you present it, a oh, lot yeah. of it is written yeah. for yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and I, so I found that to be quite a different task than just saying my own thing. But I survived again? it. It was fine. It was, will you do it again, do it again presenting again. or just being or sitting next I'll do, to I'll do it again. I'll do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do it again. I'm, I think that maybe when if the Labour Party wins the next election, yeah. uh, I think that, that wouldn't be that keen on me doing it. I don't think. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. But, yeah. talking, but talking about high profile politicians um, on our, Have I Got News for You, do you think the programme Have I Got News for You catapulted Boris? Boris Johnson onto the national stage. I mean, they've been accused of this. They've denied it, of course. What do you say? No, I don't think so. Um, and that's sort of out of a loyalty to people who are incredibly kind to me. Um, I think that um, Boris Johnson was going to get himself catapulted onto a national stage no matter what, <laughs> um, because that is his one um, guiding principle in life is to be loved and adored. It's actually a terrible weakness on his part, which is means he has come and stuck but you know them the, and and you know I, I i make no bones about it i'm a massive show off but he that that is his thing he 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 didn't need them um to do it and actually they gave him such a drubbing if you watch go yeah. back and watch they weren't kind to him that's, that's, what made, that's what made the whole thing brilliant he's just watching yeah they weren't kind to him um and i i certainly have never not particularly found them to be unkind to me um, but uh, then I, you know, I, I don't definitely, I definitely don't have the rap sheet that Boris Johnson has for them to pick on. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, no, look, I don't, I don't think that. I don't, I don't think that. I think it would have happened anyway. And and you know what? If if that's all it took for him to become the prime minister, then they're considerably <laughs> more powerful than they think they are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I'll make a prediction. You'll be the first female Labour <laughs> minister. What do you say oh, to that? Um, I'm I'm not sure that that's uh, that that's particularly accurate. Maybe you never know. One day, uh, it's just I'd like to just get into government. Yeah, well, you get into government, we're, we're, and then you'll be there, and then I, that's my yeah, my money's on I, you, Jess. <laughs> well, 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 the funny thing is, is that I am considered to be like a, you know a sort of popular political figure, uh, but I have the great privilege so far, although it doesn't feel like one, of not having had to be in government. And I spend a lot of time saying to people, I I I worry deeply how disappointed people may become when governance is different to being able to be a mouthy opposition MP, uh, and so. Let's hope that the scales don't fall from my eyes or everybody else's. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm not saying no. Yes, we'll see. We'll see. And then my listeners will say they heard it first here on Heads Talk. Jess Phillips, it's been a pleasure. Many thanks for your time and insights. No worries. Take care. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. 
Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.